Second Chronicles 32, and I'm starting a couple verses earlier than that, but Hezekiah, he carried out his work and kept it up everywhere in Judah. He was the very best, good, right, and true before his God. Everything he took up, whether it had to do with worship in God's temple or the carrying out of God's law and commandments, he did well in a spirit of prayerful worship. He was a great person. Chapter 32. And then, after his exemplary track record, this. Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and attacked Judah. He put the fortified cities under siege, determined to take them. When Hezekiah realized that Sennacherib's strategy was to take Jerusalem, he talked to his advisors and military leaders about eliminating all the water supplies outside the city. And they thought that was a good idea. There was a great turnout of people to plug the springs and tear down the aqueducts. They said, why should the kings of Assyria march in and be furnished with running water? So Hezekiah went to work, repairing every part of the city wall that was damaged. He built defensive towers on it, built another wall of defense further out, and reinforced the defensive rampart of the old city of David. He also built up a large store of armaments, spears, and shields. He then appointed the military officers to be responsible for the people and got them all together at the public square in front of the city gate. Hezekiah rallied the people. He said, be strong, take courage, don't be intimidated by the king of Assyria and his troops. There are more on our side than on their side. He only has a bunch of men. We have our God to help us and fight for us. Morale surged. Hezekiah's words put steel in their spine. Later on, Sennacherib, who had set up camp a few miles away at Lachish, sent messengers to Jerusalem, addressing Judah through Hezekiah. A proclamation of Sennacherib, king of Assyria. You poor people, do you think you're safe in that so-called fortress of Jerusalem? You're sitting ducks. Do you think Hezekiah will save you? Don't be stupid. Hezekiah has fed you a pack of lies. When he says, God will save us from the power of the king of Assyria, he's lying. You're all going to end up dead. Wasn't it Hezekiah who cleared out all the neighborhood worship shrines and told you there is only one legitimate place to worship? Do you have any idea what I and my ancestors have done to all the countries around here? Has there been a single God anywhere strong enough to stand up against me? Can you name one God among all the nations that either I or my ancestors have ravaged that so much has lifted a finger against me? So what makes you think you'll make out any better with your God? Don't let Hezekiah fool you. Don't let him get by with his bare-faced lies. Don't trust him. No God of any country or kingdom ever has been one that accounts against me or my ancestors. What kind of odds does that give your God? So the messengers felt free to throw in their personal comments, putting, both, putting down both God and God's servant Hezekiah. Sennacherib continued to send letters insulting the God of Israel. The gods of the nations were powerless to help their people. The God of Hezekiah is no better, probably worse. The messengers would come up to the wall of Jerusalem and shout up to the people standing on the wall, shouting their propaganda in Hebrew, trying to scare them into demoralized submission. The contemptuous, they contemptuously lumped the God of Jerusalem in with the handmade gods of other people. 
King Hezekiah, joined by the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, responded by praying, calling to heaven. God answered by sending an angel who wiped out everyone in the Assyrian camp, both warriors and officers. Sennacherib was forced to return home in disgrace, tail between his legs. When he went into the temple of his God, his own sons killed him. God saved Hezekiah and the citizens of Jerusalem from Sennacherib, king of Assyria, and everyone else. And he continued to take good care of them. The people streamed into Jerusalem bringing offerings for the worship of God and extensive presents to Hezekiah, king of Judah. All the surrounding nations were impressed. Hezekiah's stock soared. We are going to be picking up the pace today as you turn to Micah chapter 1. I just felt the Spirit leading me to cover 22 verses today, heading into near to Micah chapter 2. Don't worry, the, the amount of pages on my sermon manuscript is the same as most sermons. So. <laughs> to get a little bit of background, Micah is prophesying near the end of the northern kingdom. Israel is divided in this time of history where in the northern kingdom, often called Israel or Samaria, is full of idolatry, full of worshipping false gods, hence their judgment and being taken captive by the rising power of a people called the Assyrians. Meanwhile, Micah is a prophet from the southern kingdom called Judah. But he has words to say to both kingdoms, and we slowly covered the first five verses in the last two weeks, the first week we talked deeply about the historical context of Micah's ministry. Last week we talked about the symbolic coming of God in judgment, trampling the heights of the earth, and contrasted that with also the reality that God likewise comes in the flesh through Jesus to trample the high places, that is the false gods of the earth, and save us in the process. We're really heading into Old Testament fire and brimstone here. But we need to hear it in the mindset of a dad disciplining his kids. Only this is God Almighty disciplining his holy nation for much bigger injustices than not cleaning their room or not sharing their toys. Even so, we need to understand the heart of God. We're going to read the whole chunk of scripture to begin with, so I invite you to stand for a while as we read these first 22 verses. As we read 22 verses today, I believe you can do it. <laughs> I know you've been sitting for some songs, but you need your legs stretched anyways, right? So uh, thanks for standing in honor of hearing the word of God here as we begin in Micah 1.6 and go all the way through chapter 2, verse 11. God says, Therefore... I will make Samaria a heap of ruins in the countryside, a planting area for a vineyard. I will roll her stones into the valley and expose her foundations. All her carved images will be smashed to pieces. All her wages will be burned in the fire. And I will destroy all her idols. Since she collected the wages of a prostitute, they will be used again for a prostitute. Because of this, I will lament and wail. I will walk barefoot and naked. I will howl like the jackals and mourn like ostriches. For her wound is incurable and has reached even Judah. It has approached the gate of my people as far as Jerusalem. 
Don't announce it in gap. Don't weep at all. Roll in the dust in Beth Lepra. Depart in shameful nakedness, you residents of Shapir. The residents of Zanan will not come out. Beth Azel is lamenting. Its support is taken from you. Though the residents of Meroth anxiously wait for something good, disaster has come from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. Harness the horses to the chariot, you residents of Lachish. This was the beginning of sin for daughter Zion, because Israel's acts of rebellion can be traced to you. Therefore, send farewell gifts to Moresheth Gath. The houses of Exeb are a deception to the kings of Israel. I will again bring a conqueror against you who live in Meresheth. The nobility of Israel will come to Adullam. Shave yourselves bald and cut off your hair in sorrow for your precious children. Make yourselves as bald as an eagle, for they have been taken from you into exile. Woe to those who dream up wickedness and prepare evil plans on their beds. At morning light they accomplish it, because the power is in their hands. They covet fields and seize them. They also take houses. They deprive a man of his home, a person of his inheritance. Therefore the Lord says, I am now planning a disaster against this nation. You cannot free your necks from it. Then you will not walk so proudly, because it will be an evil time. In that day, one will take up a taunt against you and lament mournfully, saying, We are totally ruined. He measured out the allotted land of my people. Now he removes it from me. He allots our fields to traitors. Therefore, there will be no one in the assembly of the Lord to divide the land by casting lots. Quit your preaching, they preach. They should not preach these things. Shame will not overtake us. House of Jacob, should it be asked, is the Lord, is the Spirit of the Lord impatient? Are these the things he does? Don't my words bring good to the one who walks uprightly? But recently my people have risen up like an enemy. You strip off the splendid robe from those who are passing through confidently, like those returning from war. You force the women of my people out of their comfortable homes, and you take my blessing from their children forever. Get up and leave, for this is not your place of rest, because defilement brings destruction a grievous destruction. If a man of wind comes and invents lies, I will preach to you about wine and beer. He would be just a preacher for this people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word just told us that for the man who walks uprightly, we should hear these words. Father, I preach nothing today that I'm, everything I preach today I'm guilty of. And I pray that your voice would be the only one that's heard, that the voice of the shepherd is calling his sheep. I pray we would all have open our hearts and ears to hear your word. And I pray before the small attorney rises up in our hearts to defend our sin, that you would put him to death. Father, I've heard it been said that some sermons are like weddings and other, other sermons are like funerals. And Father, this is a sermon, a funeral of sin that we want to put to death because we want to be more like your son Jesus. We want to walk in holiness. We want to be loving and serving you and loving and serving others, but we can only do it through the power and work and grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and his spirit. So it's him we cling to today as we do every day. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated.
that great time waster Facebook. I read an article this last week that talked about a pastor in California who put up a sign outside his church that said, Bruce Jenner is still a man. Homosexuality is a sin. The culture may change. The Bible does not. The sign was vandalized, and eventually the pastor was fired by an elder or two from his church, likely caving under pressure. The pastor, at least the comments I received, presented this humble man. He never said anything else except for the fact that he was asked to leave by one of his elders. He said, I don't want pity. I'm not seeking uh, money now that I'm relieved of a job. I just want to go and preach where a church will have me. And I'm not saying putting up a sign like this is a great gospel witnessing tool or is the best idea for passers-by who are not even Christians to put out in front of your church. But there is a reason, I believe, that many Christians and many prophets in the Bible are so adamant about sin and letting people know about sin because God knows the end of sin. In context of our passage in Micah, God has just told his people, Jerusalem and Samaria, that their transgressions are idolatry. And their idolatry is everything from temple prostitution, worshiping other gods, sacrificing to other gods, including sacrificing children. Some things never change. Instead of taking kids to an altar of fire in the name of worshiping a deity, we just get the deity out of the way and be more blatantly obvious about what we're worshiping, whether that be sex, comfort, or convenience. And instead of a burning altar, worshipers take themselves or their loved ones and have the child sacrificed by an abortion clinic. Some things never change. And when people are consumed in their sins, James, the author James, has nothing good to say in his letter about sin and the progression. He says in James chapter 1, verses 4 through 15, 14 through 15, but each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desires. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Note that it is the sinner's fault to receive their end of sin. Every sin demands justice. And every sin will find justice from the judge. And nobody has an excuse to balk at this exchange, namely receiving justice for their sins, because every person loves when justice is being done to the one who sinned against them. So God says, you've been sinning, a serious coming to do my justice, and here is the end of that sin, is what he's saying in verses 6 and 7 of Micah 1. God says, Therefore I will make Samaria, the northern kingdom, a heap of ruins in the countryside, a planting area for a vineyard. I will roll her stones into the valley and expose her foundations. All her carved images will be smashed to pieces. All her wages will be burned in the fire, and I will destroy all her idols, since she collected the wages of a prostitute. They will be used again for a prostitute. This is the end of sin, barren and ashamed. All the sinning that Samaria has been doing will end here. A place of 
barrenness, a heap of ruins, a planting area for a vineyard, and shame. The great capital is now a demolished place whose foundations are exposed. It's like Washington, D.C. is now open up for a feedlot. <laughs> this is the end of sin for those of us in it today, though. Barrenness and shame. If we keep feeding our sins, if we keep trying to hide it, it's not hidden to God. And it'll come out, and if it comes out by force, it comes out despite our greatest efforts to try to keep them hidden. It'll lead to our barrenness and shame. It'll also make us empty and addicted. Isn't Samaria so happy that they've made all their idols just to have dropped so much money and time and effort into their false worship just for Assyria to come along for God to do his bidding through them? All her carved images will be smashed to pieces. All her wages will be burned in the fire, and I will destroy all her idols. Sin leaves you empty in the end. It doesn't satisfy. You always want more. It's proven in addictions. First it was one dosage of recreational drugs. Now addicted people need new highs. First it was one naked picture. Now people are putting their life savings into movies and other images. First it was just one extra snack a day. Now ice cream and a new kind of ice cream can be found in the freezer day after day. First it was one show you always had to watch. Now your TV recording device is overloaded with 40 shows you'll never catch up on, but you would love to try. Whatever the sin is, you always want more. And in the end, it will serve you no purpose but death and destruction. But emptiness in the end. The idols will be decimated and of no value, help, or worth or concern to you. You can't take it with you. Nobody at your funeral is going to say, I'm sure glad they drank themselves to death. No one is going to say, good thing the cigarettes really helped them out in the end. Or, I'm so glad he was hiding a porn addiction. It really doesn't work that way. The end of sin also is to perpetuate more cycles of sin and death. Not only are sinners ruining their own lives, like Samaria here, they're making sure other lives are going to be ruined in the process to keep the wheels turning. Since she collected the wages of a prostitute, they will be used again for a prostitute. Thanks, Samaria. What a great legacy. The end of sin is to make sure your sin keeps on going into the future. Because Assyria is a rotten, ungodly country, they're going to come and wipe out God's holy people who are sinning to set up more sinning shrines and prostitution. Whenever you're doing the devil's bidding, and whenever he conquers you or God allows him to conquer you, it's just to put more sin in place of your sin. Nothing good is happening here. There is a reason God's people are concerned with sinners sinning. There is no good into it. And when it comes to sinners who sin, we can only lament. We can do what Micah does, what God does through Micah, and beckon people to repent. And when they don't, we can lament. Micah says it in verse 8, Because of this I will lament and wail. I will walk barefoot and naked. I will howl like the jackals and more like, mourn like ostriches. Most mourning was done in sackcloth and ashes. So for Micah to say that he's going to go 
barefooted no. naked, you can be glad that God did not call me to do that. It could be symbolism of exile. Micah's contemporary Isaiah preached naked as well. We read in Isaiah, the Lord said, as my servant Isaiah has gone naked and barefoot three years, rough, as a sign and omen against Egypt and Cush, so the king of Assyria will lead the captives of Egypt and the exiles of Cush, young and old alike, naked and barefoot with bared buttocks to Egypt's shame. But Micah is wailing and he's being very arresting. He's naked. He's trying to get attention. He's saying, this is serious. This is your sin. This is what it's bringing. We have a holy God. He's serious. He's not blowing smoke. Your sin is bringing this about. And Micah says, I will howl like the jackals and mourn like ostriches. Some translations say moan like an owl. The word here requires a long explanation on the different opinions I won't bore you with. I remember, though, last spring or summer, I was putting our dogs in the kennel late at night for the night, and I heard a screech out. And it was cool, like the first two times, and then it became piercing and annoying. I remember I was in my house trying to read, and I couldn't even read my book in my living room because there's this, this screech out like it's trying to demand my attention. Micah, I believe, is doing, saying, and shrieking whatever he can do to get the attention of those who are sinning. He is lamenting that they're choosing the paths of sin. And sin spreads. Sin is like yeast in a dough, like poison in water. It's spreading. Micah says, for her wound, that is Samaria's wound, is incurable and has reached even Judah. It has approached the gate of my people as far as Jerusalem. Samaria had spiritually come to a place where Assyria wiped them out, then Assyria heads for Jerusalem. Wynne told us this backstory in 2 Chronicles 32 of, in fact, how they came to the gate of Jerusalem and no further. Perhaps Micah is writing this, preaching this during the days of that siege, but God says, Micah says that it is the wound, the sin, the corruption of Samaria that has led to this. Friends, nobody can sin in a vacuum. There will always be consequences and there will always be victims and it will always be more than you. You cannot sin behind closed doors believing that it, if it leaves other people out of the equation, it will. We know that the story of David, for him it was just one night of giving in with sin with Bathsheba that led to her getting pregnant, that led to David murdering Uriah, that led to a legacy of like-minded sons of David who wanted their women and would get them any way they could. Samaria's wound was incurable and it spreads to affect Judah. Take that in. People died because of what Samaria did. A neighboring nation was invaded because of Samaria. In lamenting the sin and declaring the spread of sin and its consequences, Micah then goes into a rather long word play for each town that he's mentioning. He plays on its name. And also, consequently, it is a town that Sennacherib and Assyria have brought their destruction through. I believe they destroyed over 46 cities. Micah says... 
don't announce it in Gath. Don't weep at all. Roll in the dust in Beth Lepra. Depart in shameful nakedness, you residents of Shapur. The residents of Zanan will not come out. Beth Azel is lamenting. Its support is taken from you. So, Kamei, if you didn't know, comes from a nest purse word that means rope litter. Orfino is a Spanish word that means fine gold. So, it's as if Micah is saying, Kamei is going to be hung by its own rope. They're going to pan for gold and find none in Orfino. Woodland's going to be clear cut. That's kind of what Micah is saying. Gath means tell or announce. And Bethlehra means house of dust. Shafir means beautiful, fair, or pleasant. Zainan sounds like the word for go out or come on out. And Bethazel means withholding. So, all together, in my own translation, don't announce it in Telltown. Don't weep at all. Roll in the dust in the house of dust. Deport, depart in shameful nakedness, you residents of Beautifulville. The residents of Come On Outville will not come out. And the house that withholds, withholds its protection or its support is taken from you. Through the first round of cities, though, I feel like Micah is saying, painfully, humiliatingly accept your defeat. This is what's happening. Don't announce it like you're a victim here. Okay, that's what he's saying. You brought it on yourself. Don't weep about it. You deserve it. Roll in the dust. Lament. Nobody's coming to save you. Nobody's coming to support you. Furthermore, as we continue into verse 12, Meroth comes from the word for bitter. You think about the stone that Moses hit, or Naomi's other name in the book of Ruth, Meroth. So, though the residents of Meroth anxiously wait for something good, right? The residents of Bitter Town wait for something good instead of bitter, they're going to live up to their name because disaster has come from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. That's a reference again to Sennacherib's invasion that Wynne read about. Nothing good is going to come of this sin, is Micah's point. Harness the horses to the chariot, you residents of Lachish. The word correlates to the word steeds. So harness the horses to the chariot, and that is not so that they can fight, but rather so they can flee and get out of there you residents of Horse City. This was the beginning of sin for daughter Zion because of Israel's acts of rebellion can be traced to you. Horse City is really a good name for this city. Some of us skim over or maybe we forget the opulence and the exorbitance of King Solomon. 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 26 tells us Solomon accumulated 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen and stationed them in chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. How do you like that? I got so many horses and horsemen, I don't need a stable. I need a city of stables. I need an entire city for all my horses. Horses in that day owned the battlefield. They were the proverbial tanks. So Lachish in Solomon's day is made a horse city. Over time it's refortified and refined and built up until... Kings start saying, nothing can get me. I got whole cities full of tanks, right? I got whole cities filled with chariots. I can overtake a battlefield in chariots. It doesn't matter, though, if it's money in the bank, if it's chariot cities, 
if it's food in the pantry, the sin is not the chariots, it's the trust in the chariots. Contemporary prophet of Micah, Isaiah, he writes in his 31st chapter, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and who depend on horses. They trust in the abundance of chariots and in the large number of horsemen. They do not look to the Holy One of Israel, and they do not seek the Lord's help. But he also is a wise and brings disaster. He does not go back on what he says. He will rise up against the house of the wicked men and against the allies of evildoers. Egyptians are men, not God. Their horses are flesh, not spirit. When the Lord raises his hand to strike, the helper will stumble, and the one who is helped will fail. Both will perish together. Again, chariots are okay. But what happens when we find something we like, something that brings us comfort, and something that we then start to desire over God? We can become enslaved. We can put our trust in it more than God. Verse 14 says, Therefore send farewell gifts to Moresheth Gath, which is actually Micah's hometown. The houses of Akzib are a deception to the kings of Israel. I will again bring a conqueror against you who live in Marisha. The nobility of Israel will come to Agilom. Now in Kevin's lame version, the words plays are such. Therefore send farewell gifts to the town of possession, as in they're not going to possess their town anymore because they're getting farewell gifts. The houses of Deception Town will live up to their name to the kings of Israel that they're not going to protect Israel. They're going to give up their defenses. They'll prove a deception when it comes to their loyalty. I will again bring a conqueror to you who live in Possession Bill, like Morasheth. Marashah also means possession, so the irony here is that they will be dispossessed from their Possession Town because they're about to be conquered. And the nobility of Israel will come to literally their city of refuge. That's what um, Adullam was, and it was aptly named Turn Aside because Israel's leaders are being turned aside by a conqueror. That wordplay took a while, and I don't want to walk through those names to distract us from the bigger flow, the bigger picture here. We opened up in verses 6 through 7, reminding ourselves of what the end of sin is. It's barrenness, shame, emptiness, and addiction. If we let sin rule the day, we're leaving a legacy of sin and we're perpetuating more sin into the next generation. So the correct thing to do is to lament and beckon people for repentance. That's what Micah does. And through wordplay, he says, don't talk about you being the victim. Don't weep, but lament so much you're rolling in the dust. And he really closes this wordplay with the return to the idea of lamenting. The end of sin should lead us to the lament of sin. He says, shave yourselves bald and cut off your hair in sorrow for your precious children. Make yourselves as bald as an eagle, for they have been taken from you into exile. Again, nobody sins in a vacuum. There is always more than one victim, more than one casualty when it comes to sin. The unborn kids of Samaria and Judah who will be born in this horrific time or while in the exile did nothing to deserve this. But they have their forefathers, their sinning forefathers to thank whenever they are born in the world away from God's holy city, away from the presence of God. What 
tragedies, what setbacks, what handicaps can our kids thank us for, thank me for? What sins have I done or am I doing now that I'm setting the stage for my kids' future whose innocence I rob? Before Calvin, I had certainly the thoughts of, do I really want to raise a kid in this world? We have so-called educated people putting out the absurd idea that we can't tell a boy from a girl. You don't need to be a Christian to understand the basic rules of nature. Do I really want to raise a kid in this sort of culture or society? But what is more worse to me is that I know my own sins. I know my own misdeeds. I know what I've done and what I do, and do I really think, do I truly think that I'm equipped to raise a kid? I pray fairly often, Lord, don't let Calvin be entangled in the sins that I've committed. Spare him, save him. The end of sin should lead a person to lament their sins. Now Micah moves to the judgment of sin. He's going to call their sins out, and he's going to tell them their consequences. Micah says, Woe to those who dream up wickedness and prepare evil plans on their beds. At morning light they accomplish it because the power is in their hands. They covet fields and seize them. They also take houses. They deprive a man of his home, a person of his inheritance. In this judgment of sin, Micah starts by pointing out an abuse of power. In verses 1 through 2, Micah talk about people who simply because they have the power, they take what they want. Whether it be a man's vineyard, which there's a story about a wicked king named Ahab and his wife Jezebel who take a vineyard. Or we talked about another king who instead of fighting war with his men, decides to take one of his men's wives to sleep with her. God says, woe to the person who abuses their power. And you and I may not be king with access to stealing land or depriving people of their inheritances and vineyards or stealing wives, but we can certainly get into a lot of sin with just a wallet and a car to take us places we shouldn't go, a TV or a computer to put images on our, in our eyes we shouldn't see, or to websites we shouldn't go to, and we can fulfill Jesus' Sermon on the Mount doing sins in the heart is just as bad as doing them, period. And we might want to respond with, but it's my money, I earned it. It's my TV, I bought it. It's my computer, it's my car, I have access to it. It's mine for the taking. Woe to me, says God. Because just as kings are kings because God gave or permitted them the authority, so everything that we have are merely just things given to us to steward it. Woe to us when we abuse what we have the steward. And God has a fitting punishment for those in verses 1 through 2 abusing power. He says, therefore, the Lord says, I am now planning a disaster against the nation. You cannot free your necks from it. Then you will not walk so proudly because it will be an evil time. In that day there will be a taunt against you and lament mournfully, saying, we are totally ruined. He measures out the allotted land of my people. How he removes it from me. He allots our fields to traitors. Therefore, there will be no one in the assembly of the Lord to divide the land by casting lots. So for the proud, snobbish leaders, with the power in their hands to do such evil, 
No amount of money, no amount of authority, no amount of wit will free their necks from the disaster that God is planning. For every sinner who does not humble themselves, humiliation will come. A reversal happens. At first the evil men were stealing land, but now God through Assyria steals the entire land of Samaria. That's the point of verses 4 through 5. There will be no one in the assembly of the Lord to divide the land by casting lots. It reminds me of children in a playroom with a bunch of toys. Because Samaria here and every sinner is like a child in a playroom. What happens? There's that one toy that they all want. So they swipe it from each other. They start knocking each other over, taking the toy back. The toy consumes both of them. The chaperone rebukes them several times. Play nice, share, and tell what happens. The toy gets taken away. (laughs) That solves the problem. It sure is unhappy to be the kids because the one toy that they were allowing to dictate their joy has been taken away. A bunch of North Israelites in power, abusing their people, taking their land. Now the land's not any of the Israelites. The toy's been taken away. The end of sin. Barrenness, shame, emptiness, addiction. The land's taken away. It's being given to the Assyrians, a bunch of rowdy sinners themselves who will perpetuate sinning. It's a perfect reason for the lament of sin. This is what sin does. This is what it produces. And this is the judgment. You do this. This is what you get. It's not like Israel was not forewarned. There have always been prophecy. There's always been calls to repentance. Micah is out naked, screeching like an owl. He's doing the best he can to get their attention. But the sobriety of the word of Micah needs to fall on receptive ears. Here's what Micah says about that. Quit your preaching. They preach. They should not preach these things. Shame will not overtake us. You're so dark, Micah. You, you paint our God, who the great King David told us several times, has a love that endures forever. You paint him to be so mean. I know we're guilty, but come on, Micah, lighten up. It's just the way things are now. It's a new normal. House of Jacob, should it be asked, Is the Spirit of the Lord impatient? Are these the things that he does? Don't my words bring good to the one who walks uprightly? This is why I preach in a book like Micah. This is why a book like Micah is good for the soul. Don't my words, ask God, bring good to the one who walks uprightly? In other words, No matter how hard it is to hear, why would any true believer tell Micah to shut up? Is the Spirit of the Lord impatient? Samaria has had over 200 years to repent from their sins of idolatry. God has a long wick. God is patient, waiting for each and every person to repent. He wants No one to perish. Everyone to come to everlasting life. God is love. God is grace. And I can tell you as a father that I love Calvin and I have a long wick. But sometimes, enough is enough. 
Sometimes I see the end of my son's folly, and I know it's time for discipline. And so does God. Samaria is not going to repent here. They're going to keep on sinning. They're going to keep on taking their kids down to the altar and burning them in the fire. And it would be more unjust to say, go ahead. You're my kids. I love you. Burn some more kids in the fire than to met out justice. The Spirit of the Lord is not impatient. His justice comes right on time. And here is God's concern. Here's why it's time. He says, But recently my people have risen up like an enemy. My people, says God. You're supposed to be my kids. You're supposed to reflect me. But you are now the enemy. You are a direct contrast to who you should be. He says, You strip off the splendid robe from those who are passing through confidently, like those returning from war. He's saying, You're taking advantage of foreigners and travelers, and you do it with confidence, giving no thought to the retribution due to you. No thought to the consequences. You're you're sinning like there's nobody watching. You're coming back for more. You got done with fighting people. You're the victor, you think. You force the women of my people out of their comfortable homes, and you take my blessing from their children forever. God is saying that with every warning... With every prophecy they ignore, they might as well be packing up women and children to send them on their way to exile from the nation. Because apparently Micah is wrong here. Apparently no exile is going to come. And the ends of what sin brings have nobody but the sinner to blame. Quite the contrary to what Samaria and Israel think. Those who would laugh at Micah and doubt in his injunction. Micah says to them, get up and leave. This is not your place of rest. Because defilement brings destruction, a grievous destruction. But instead of Micah, instead of God Almighty, instead of God's sober warnings to the ends of sin and the lament of sin and the judgment of sin, perhaps what Israel would like to hear is verse 11, and that's what he says, if a man of wind comes and invents lies, I will preach to you about wine and beer. He would be just the preacher for this people. You're not feeding any beasts. You're not setting yourselves up for failure. You can sin in a vacuum. God is a God of only grace and so much patience that his wick lasts forever. Sin all you want. Have some more wine and beer. No. Listen to Micah, rather. Because for the one who walks uprightly, they will respond correctly to the rebukes in Micah. They will take note of the sobriety of God's word and say, The end of sin should bring my lamentation, and the judgment of sin should warn me and stir me from my complacency. God is serious here. This is not just ink and paper. This is not just an old, dead, naked guy talking to me. And I don't just have uh uh-ohs, mistakes, problems, and whoopsie-daisies. I have sin. I'm offending God Almighty. I'm doing damage to myself. I'm ruining my mind by making addictions. I'm making victims of those around me. I'm setting the stage for my kids and the generations below me. I'm going to wind up in barrenness, shame, emptiness, and addiction if I don't come to grips with what I've done and seek God for mercy instead of laugh at him 
and minimize him or dumb him down into a cheap god who would be careless about justice and my well-being. Who would rather pat me on the back all the way to hell than to stop me from my self-destruction. Bruce Jenner is still a man. Homosexuality is still a sin. The culture may change, but the Bible does not. I don't know if we should be put on a sign on the highway where many people who are in different parts of life can walk by and that's all they see about the church. What I do know is that those statements are true, whether they offend or not. And if the truth offends anyone, it's not the truth's fault. It's the person unwilling to receive the truth. And instead of attacking the words, and instead of attacking any words from the Bible that sound offensive or we disagree with, we should take note of the sobriety of the word. We should see the end of sins for what they do. We should lament the sins that we have. We should take note of the judgment that sin brings, and then we should cling to the word that becomes flesh. Jesus Christ, to be saved from sin. We should be among the upright and love his word because it corrects our heart if we're listening. We should receive with meekness the implanted word that is able to save our souls and let our lamenting lead to repenting so that we might be saved and find the joy in Christ who came to take the punishment for our sins so that we might be spared. Amen. Let's pray. Father, it would be a tragedy to look at these words and to see real people, real destruction, real nations taking over nations, all because of what starts behind closed doors or what starts even further in the heart. And then to walk away from this and not see the fair warning you've given us. That would be a tragedy. It would be a reason for celebration and joy that word plants in our hearts and it produces the repentance of the people. That we would see the great joy it is that you, God Almighty, have become flesh. You've left us with your spirit. And you didn't come to just give us band-aids and patch-ups and behavior modification. But you've given us a new heart where it starts. You've given us the presence of God in our very souls. So that rather than trying really hard to be good people, we can lean on you to do the good fruit. That you can produce the fruit if we would just abide in you like branches in the vine. Father, if there's anybody in this room who has had that little attorney to tell them to not believe everything that's been stated, I pray that you would wreck their conscience and wreck their heart with your truth to bring about godly repentance. Not simply because I'm right and they're wrong, but simply because the truth is right. I have no say in that. So, Father, have your way in our hearts. Produce repentance. Help us to be more like your son Jesus. Help us to know when we do sin. Help us to take these warnings seriously that simply because we have asked for your salvation, it's not that we're better than anybody else. We might have worse sins than homosexuality. Help us to rely on you fully to be the holy people you've called us to be. 
Father, we ask and we pray all these things in Jesus' name.